just think about the, the state of prisons even today, from when the pandemic happened um, in 2020 through now, where there are prisons where people have not been able to have human touch with a loved one, a family member, or anyone over the last you know two years. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. With me is Dr. Topeka K. Sam, as well as Aaron Haney. Uh, Dr. Topeka Sam spent some time in prison, but she didn't allow. She did not did not allow that to define her. In fact, it transformed her, and she is using that experience to make sure to help all the women that she that that she left behind, and making sure society understands the the debt and the toll like literally, figuratively, that is put upon uh, women by this system, uh, by what I do not call a, a criminal justice system because justice does not do it justice because it doesn't deserve to have that word. And our goal is to one day make sure that we do have a justice system. And it's why we have people people like Dr. Topeka K. Sam and also Aaron Haney, who was with the Reform Alliance, who was also, of course, a friend of this podcast uh, and great supporter of this podcast and the work that we do. So it's great to have you both on. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored. No, it's great. Let's get started. So, um, uh, 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 Doctor Sam, I want to start with you. Um, you 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 spent some time in prison. You've been very public about that on your website as part of your testimony and, and who and, and about about the ladies' hope of ministries and what you're doing now. But I want to I want to I want to take you back to where you were when you spent time in prison, which is a very hard environment. I've never been there, but it's easy to tell if you pay any attention that is not an environment that is uh, that is focused on reform, that is focused on healing. In fact, it seems to really do quite the opposite. So in that challenging environment, how did you keep the faith and really stay positive to be able to move forward and to get to where you are now? Because you could have made a choice to go the other direction. Right. Um, well, I mean, I've, I always say that, you know, it wasn't prison that changed me. It was the women that I met that did. Mm. So I feel like, um, you know, I can start there. It was the testimonies of the other sisters, the understanding of the things that drove them into incarceration that were very different than mine. Um, the fact that there were women who had been in prison for over a year who couldn't pay a hundred dollar bail. Mm. Um, you know, there was women that were cycling in and out because of substance misuse. And you would see them, they would go, you would see them and go, and then you wouldn't see them anymore. And you would find out it was because they had an overdose. Um, it was women who were being criminalized for sex work. You know, the mm -hmm. fact that they were being the ones that were then being incarcerated, but the people that actually abused them and paid for them weren't. Um, you know, with sisters who had, you know, drug charges like myself, I was incarcerated for a conspiracy drug charge, but were sentenced to life as first time nonviolent drug offender yeah. because they didn't cooperate and they couldn't cooperate because they knew nothing, right. um, you know, but their male counterparts often didn't even spend that much time in jail and sometimes not at all um, because they end up throwing them under the bus in order for them to get leniency. And so while I began hearing all these different, you know, testimonies and then learning um, after doing my own research and reading and, you know, it was that 85% you know, of all women who were incarcerated were mothers. You know, 90% of all women who were incarcerated were survivors of some type of sexual trauma or early childhood trauma or abuse. 95% um, of all women who were incarcerated are 
um, survivors of some type of, you know, mental health issue. And I use the word survivor because, you know, again, that is something else that they're being criminalized for. And whether it's something like, um, you know, anxiety or depression or more severe, like schizophrenia. Right. And all of the things that are driving women through incarceration, which is very different than that of men. And while I'm grateful to God that, you know, for me, I had support. You know, I had visits every week, if not every other week, you know, whether I was in Virginia, Connecticut or Illinois. Um, but there were sisters who had been in for decades and hadn't seen their mother or even their children in the mm. decade. And, you know, there were times that we even supported making sure, and I say we, myself, my friends, my family supported to making sure a child was able to see her mother after 10 years. You know, our mother was able to see her daughter after seven years, like all of these things. Um, and it, I knew that, you know, if people saw the faces of women who were incarcerated, that women would not be the 800% increase over the last 20 years. Like I knew that without a shadow of a doubt, that there needs to be systems where you are holding people accountable while healing them. Because the system as we know it now does not do um, either. I mean, face it, even being in prison is not holding a person accountable, really. If you no. think about it, it's just no, warehousing, no. throwing people in cages, being more punitive, you know, compounding more trauma, and then 95% of all right. people being 98% yeah, yeah. of all people are being released. Yeah. I mean, you- being released, right? Right. So you said a whole lot there, and I and I I, I don't I don't want to interrupt you, but I I do want to make sure we unpack a lot of things you just really said. Yeah, I just want to give it to you all now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's okay. But let's let's break it down a little bit because I'm gonna gonna I'm gonna go at least piece by piece and revisit some of these. Uh, you know, specifically though, I want to think about because uh, you mentioned several things. You talked about why people are in prison, and we and, and there is this because of the I want to say it. Uh, dramatization of 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 the criminal system because it's not justice uh and it makes you it makes it very black and white that everybody you know they show cops are robbers cops are the greatest people on earth and you know all these criminals are doing the most heinous of crimes and they deserve to be there and we focus more on the on the stories as cops and the prosecutors as the ultimate heroes not to say sometimes they are but they're not always, right? And then so that's the problem because you have this this narrative that is not correct. And, and and that's not how the system actually works. And so you talked about how some people are just behind bars, not because they're doing any major crime, it's because they are just the crime of poverty. That's what that's the crime, right? And then I want to get more into the issues of mental health and trauma, but let's talk about the crime of being poor. Like Aaron, I'll go to you in terms of like how. Uh, looking at the Reform Alliance from your position there, how do you help people understand the link between really mass, incar- mass incarceration and mass poverty? Yeah, so I think Topeka laid out a, a number of issues really well, far better than I could. And it's why it's so important that these movements are led by people who are directly impacted. Um, so I've been a criminal defense lawyer for over a decade, working mostly on death penalty cases, but on a number of different cases. Um And I don't have a single client whose life would have been dramatically different if they had had resources, right? Um, But for finding themselves in a situation where 
they had very few options. And again, people do make choices. So I don't want to take away agency completely. Um, but, but for being in a situation with very few options, and as Topeka laid out, but for unresolved, untreated trauma, um, the clients, including the clients that I had on death row who were accused of the most heinous crimes, um, would have never found themselves in that situation, right? Um, we have whole uh, sort of categories of crimes in this country that are unapologetically based on poverty. And I'm not just talking about theft and, and petty theft and a number of different crimes that have to do with taking resources. I'm also talking about quality of life crimes, right? We have a whole category of crimes in this nation that people are prosecuted for simply for being poor. So quality of life crimes tend to be crimes where we are criminalizing human functions on the street. Um, so you hear sometimes about sit and lie laws um, yeah. throughout the country, right? Where people are sitting or lying on the sidewalk. Um, if they don't have somewhere else to go, people who are using the bathroom on the sidewalk, um, uh, you know, people who are existing out in public space because there is nowhere else for them to go. Um, those are quality of life crimes. Uh, and those are crimes that, that, many district attorneys throughout the country prosecute and in fact get pressure to prosecute. Um, right. So those are crimes where we aren't just talking about the link, right, between poverty and crime, which, which I think is, is clear and linear. But here we actually have started criminalizing poverty in a very basic direct yes. sense as well. Yes, I mean, we, re we really do criminalize poverty for sure. Erin, um, I want to ask you one question, then I want to go back to uh, to, to, to Dr. Topeka Sam, um, as a legal defense attorney, talking to the listeners, what's the one thing that that would shock them about how our system actually works? That would that would just that would just shock them. If you could think of the one thing that just, or it could be a story that you can that you've been through in terms of uh, representing. There are so many. So, uh, you know, I guess what I'd start with is sort of the banality of injustice, right? The the fact that um, you would be hard pressed if you were to court watch in a system in the country, you would be hard pressed to spend even an hour where you don't observe shocking miscarriages of justice in our in our criminal legal system, right? Um, and for a system that is built ostensibly on fairness and justice, that in and of itself should be shocking to us, right? That right. you could not spend an hour observing a courtroom um, and not see just wild miscarriages of justice. Um, and I think so much of, of this has to do with the fact that we've built a system um, where we've confused justice with punishment. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, exactly. We for for far too long um, have come to understand more justice means more punishment. When of course, as Topeka just right. laid out, we know that that isn't true. We know isn't... that punishment doesn't even mean accountability, let right. alone justice. No. No. I mean, like if it, if if, it, if locking people up was the answer and just having more severe, harsh penalties, we would have solved the problem because we do that. We do do that better than any other system yes. in the world. We definitely lock up people. We got that down to a science, art, whatever you want to say. We lock up more people than any, any any other nation in the world, including Russia and all these other nations that are certainly uh, not good in their practices. But we but we uh, but we want to aspire higher than them. Yet our 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 our, our 
our criminal system does not do that. Can you think of anything particular? Is there any story that sticks out to you? Like, I think I think stories are important for people. To, it's, it's one thing to talk about stats. It's another thing to talk about. Now that I'm going to go to you uh, uh, to speak about your sure. story. Sure. And it, again, that's, you know, I'm always hesitant to tell other people's stories yes. because I think it's their story to tell. But I can tell you as, as you know, an attorney, I guess some of the things that stick with me the most are especially clients who've been convicted of extraordinarily heinous crimes, right? So right. I can think of one client in particular um, who, you know, being on death row, wasn't able to see his family, wasn't able to have contact visits, so didn't have touch um, for decades, right? Wow. And I just want people to pause and think about that, um, that the only time that somebody is touching you when they are shackling you or handcuffing you, um, that you don't have the simple physical touch that humans crave and need um, as basic human beings. So this man is on death row. He, he lives under a sign that says condemned. So he wakes up every morning being reminded that society um, has condemned him literally to die. Um, and as he's being hated and working through, a, a, you know, unresolved trauma and fighting literally for his life, um, the best case scenario for this individual, right, is that he dies in prison. Right. It's that mm. we are able to save him from being executed and he dies in prison. What he's doing in his spare time there on, on death row, he is number one, earning his GED, which I think if you just pause for a second and think about that, right? We think about GED as a tool to get something else, usually, right? It's a degree right. you get. Whereas this individual, despite waking up under a sign that says condemn, despite fighting for his life, he simply wants to do better and be better at that point, right? So he's working on his GED and he's working on sending letters back to kids in the community he grew up in, trying to tell them how they can avoid the situation that he found himself in. Um, and I just think, you know, for all of the, the shows that we see, as you mentioned, the narratives that we have around yeah. human beings as monsters, yeah. um, I think people are shocked to find out, you know, how how humans are resilient, we are at our core compassionate, um, and how at our core, we want to do better and be better, right? That we are not defined by that one moment of the crime, that we're so much more than that. And I think yeah. you can see that, you know, nowhere more than when people are fighting for their lives on death yeah. row. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Topeka, uh, I, one of my favorite quotes from a, a one of my friends based here in Ohio, Shakira Diaz, you may you may know her uh, with the Alliance for Safety and Justice. She often says, like, no one should have to audition for humanity. Right. That's just a fundamental belief she has. Talk about talk about something that people that might be surprised about what women go through within the system and how they sometimes have to audition for their humanity from what you've seen and how you've been able to make them understand that they don't they shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, I have a prime example. And I just also want to first lift up what Erin said about, you know, people not having human touch in decades. And just think about the, the state of prisons, even today, from when the pandemic happened um, in 2020 through now, where there are prisons where people have not been able to have human touch with a loved one, a family member, or anyone over the last, you know, two years. 
And what that is like. Um, and so it just kind of took me back there for a moment because I have friends right now who are incarcerated who haven't been able to get a visit because the prisons are saying that, they, you know, COVID is still circling. And even though, you know, they're deciding internally not to provide the visits and making people wear reuse masks, but the officers aren't wearing them at all. So, you know, it's these dynamics um, when you think about humanity um, that when people are incarcerated, you're not looked at as humans. Um, but, you know, I think what speaks directly to this question would be the work that we did um, together on dignity for incarcerated women. Um, dignity for incarcerated women was um, an idea of, you know, making sure that women had personal hygiene products, tampons and pads at no cost to them, um, that women were able to be within a certain proximity from their children instead of being sent thousands of miles away to keep families unified for as best as you can while incarcerated and in different bills statewide would determine what different types of hygiene products were necessary uh, for women to have outside of pads and tampons. And for me, a prime example, which I've spoken about publicly, um, as a matter of fact, in the White House at the time, um, was when I was incarcerated, I had uterine fibroids. And when you have uterine fibroids, you tend to have heavier cycles and longer cycles. And though I um, had resources, you know, I had family that sent me money every every month. I worked two jobs incarcerated. I was actually paid a grade one position because I was in a federal prison and worked for what was Unicor Federal Prison Industry. So my job paid me $100 a month, uh, where many people only get paid $5 or $4 a month. Wait, wait, wait. Um, Pause. $100 <laughs> a month. How much did you work to get paid 40 $100 hours a week? 40, 40 hours a week. Except my shift was seven to three. Um, so you worked 40 hours a week and you made, I just want to hear it again, a hundred uh, a month, a hundred a month. And then I worked a 20 hour a week and I made, um, $9 a month, but that was high pay because there are people who work 40 hours. That a is week. high pay to it get a hundred. I was going to a hundred dollars a month, 40 hours a week. Is that what you said? And high pay. That's high pay. hundred dollars a month. Grade one. So the federal prison had with Unicor, which is federal prison industries. And in the institution I was in, uh, the line workers were were um, they built radio mounts for the U.S. military. Now, I was the head inventory clerk, so I had to make sure all the inventory was there. And the reason why I came straight into the institution was able to get a grade one position, which they looked at the grade scale as a government job. So they created a grade scale in the same way because it was a government job, but you didn't get paid a grade A pay. Um, and so I knew how to work SAP, which was a computer program because I worked for Amtrak and it was the same program. So that's why I was able to just kind of like circumvent phone from a grade, you know, D to, you know, a grade four to a grade one. But in that, um, because I did all the inventory, I would see the contracts and it was multi-million dollar contracts that the prison was getting to build these mounts. And these sisters working on the line, actually doing the tangible labor were making $19 a month. It was disgust. I mean, it, it's it's yeah. disgusting to see, right? So you which think is how which is how people are poor people are being exploited clearly, right? That's one of these examples of why we don't have a justice system. It's a it's, right. a, it's a profit system. This let's be clear. That's why that's, this is this is this has been built over since since the beginning. Absolutely, and that's why they talk about the Thirteenth Amendment, right? And the fact yeah. that people can still you know be treated like a slave and voluntary servitude and all these things, right? Thirteenth, Fourteenth Amendment. 
But back to, um, so this is just, that was another example of dignity, right? And then with my cycle, um, when I, though I was able to buy a pack of pads, which were very flimsy, they didn't have tampons then, um, I would go through a pack sometimes in a day. And so I would have to, I couldn't buy anymore because they only allowed you to buy one pack a week. And so I would have to go to this guard and I would have to ask the guard to issue me more pads. And so what they made me do was quantify my cycle. And what that means is I had to take off the used pad, put it in a brown paper bag, go to the guard who typically was a male guard who asked me to open the bag so he could see that I used the pads so he could issue me two to three more. And this was going on. And I was, it had got to a point that I was like, wait, you really want to see what's in this bag? Like, are you okay with this? And I mean, of course it was hazardous. They didn't have me put it in, you know, one of those little red um, hazard um, trash cans. They didn't, it was just, this is what you do. You take this here and you just throw it in the regular trash. And, you know, after a while, obviously I fought because that's who I am. And I was able to get the um, nurse or the PA in order to prescribe me pads that were, you know, overnight size pads and things like that so that I didn't have to continue to do this. But, you know, to think about what that felt like having to, you know, not it was not only embarrassing, it was disgusting. You know, it just I had like I I had to go through that. Um, and so, you know, while you think about that, or the bill also ended shackling of women during child labor. You know, the fact that why were you still shackling women? And they're still doing it. Now, yeah. You know. Um, and so it's like all of these things that women have to go through versus men, which are different. And then obviously, you know, people get sexually handled, you know, mistreated and abused. But the rate of women is grossly uh, um, higher than there is men while incarcerated specifically um, and where, you know, they made a law, the PREA law, which states that, you know, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. But yet, you know, you find where there's officers being walked off for raping women. Women are having getting pregnant by officers and they're saying they were in a relationship you cannot be no, under no. the care of the state and be in a relationship with one of the workers. Like that is rape. Um, and so, you know, it's bartering sex for money so you can have commissary. It's, you know, just strictly taking advantage, women getting STDs uh, because the officers are sleeping unprotected, raping these women unprotected um, and multiple at a time. And then not being held accountable, just being they aren't being held accountable. They're being shipped to another facility mm. to where they can wreak havoc again. So, you know, I know, again, I said a lot because, yeah. you know, so well, much. I, well, I want to focus on that, that, that the stat from your website, the 86% of women in jail have been victims of sexual violence or trauma. I, I believe, is that during pre or post, are you saying like during, but also like pre before they even get there, just, 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 they deal with trauma. It seems like that's the major issue. I mean, I would lean, yeah, I would lean to say that there, um, I mean, anyone who's experienced any type of um, trauma. trauma imprisonment can be susceptible to going to prison. You see more of it in communities of color and people yeah, who are struggling with poverty because of how we even talk about trauma in our communities, right? Well, how, do we, how do we deal with this? The question. So the question is, no. how do we, no. exactly, well, how do we change that, I guess, is the question. Right, how, do we, right. how, do we, how do we change the two things? Internally, how do we deal with it as a community? And the second question, and this will go for Aaron too. So I think I'll ask you the question for the community. And then Aaron, I ask you the question for how do we get society to understand that solving 
trauma will solve justice and crime. So, uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Speaker uh, from the from the internal community point of view, how do we understand that this is something we should address? How did you go about it? Yeah. So for me, it was just, again, sharing my testimony, talking about it and, and understanding that, listen, we can't pray everything away. Like I'm a God fearing woman. Um, I pray every day. I'm, I'm up at five praying at six with, you know, my prayer sisters on the phone. Like that's yep. my day. That's what I do. This is like, this is what I do. Um, but even in that, you can't pray all trauma away, which is why God has placed different people in place right. to be able to work with them. And so for me, it was understanding that there were things within my family, whether it was mental health issues, whether it was other trauma, you know, Erin talked about the sign condemn, you know, you know, the, the life and death is in the power of the tongue. When I'm walking in, in the store, I was in Target and this woman was cussing at her kids so terribly. And I just was like, sis, are you okay? I mean, she looked at me like she wanted to cuss me out and I have been cussed out before, right. but the idea is we have to communicate with each other to let each other know that how you may have been treated growing up was not the way that it needs to be. And that there are resources around mental health support, spiritual support, um, and other support that we need as a community. Now I see, you know, like the Boris P. Henson Foundation, Taraji Henson, and Charlemagne the God and other people um, are talking more about mental health issues and making it more, um, not only accessible, but, you know, okay to communicate about it. Um, but we still have such a, a long way to go as a community to yeah. understand and identify that the person who is experiencing um, the things that we see that will land them there, they're not crazy. Um, they need support. Yeah, no, I mean, very, very well said. Um, Aaron, your point of view in terms of how we get society as a whole to understand that fixing the root of things is actually understanding and addressing trauma on the front end. Sure. So first of all, listen to Dr. Topeka Sam, right? And and I mean that sincerely. Follow her, listen to her, follow her work. Um, I had been doing this work for about 10 years before I met Dr. Topeka Sam through a, a mutual friend of ours, Jessica Jackson. And Dr. Topeka changed my life, right? So even doing this work, listening to her about her experiences really changed how I look at the issue. And I think that that's key, right? Talk to people who have experienced this issue from all, from all angles, right? That's how we get proximate to the issue. That's how we open up in terms of compassion and understanding. Um, and I think also there are some, some very basic things that we can do um, in terms of a legal sense and a practical sense, right? We can invest in meaningful second chances, right? Um, right now, we've talked about incarceration and the trauma of incarceration, uh, which is severe and lasting, right? Um, so lasting that it can be a lifetime time sentence. Um, so yeah. I know one of the things that that uh, Topeka has been working on is this remission now campaign that looks at the crazy amounts of restitution that people are sentenced to pay over their lifetime. So once they're out from being incarcerated, they yeah. still have this sentence that is holding them down. Reform Alliance, similarly, <clears throat> where I work, we focus on community supervision, right? So what happens to people um, in the criminal legal system when they are no longer incarcerated, but they are in the community? Why are we still punishing them, right? Why are we using that as a trap door and a pipeline back to prison instead of a springboard to success, right? Yeah, yeah. So we can really invest in um, 
you know, in healing, as Topeka said, invest in mental health solutions, um, and, and really look at things differently. And it sounds cliche, but it does require a shift, right? It requires us moving away from punishment, which as you said, Rob, doesn't work. If we could punish oh. ourselves out of this issue with crime, we would have done it. Um, and instead turning towards investing in human beings, investing in compassion, and investing in meaningful second chances. No, I completely agree. And let's let's just dive a little bit into, into remission now, what that campaign's about. And the fact is, a lot of people don't know, like you, you get out of prison, right? But you still owe money. And oh, you've been working the whole time and being paid, not, it's not even poverty wages, slave wages. And then you still owe money, though you've made profit for others. Tell us about the campaign and 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 and, and what you want the, the, the listeners to know and how we can help. Yeah, sure. So with the Remission Now campaign, um, it was brought to me, actually, the idea of remission because I had a drug crime. And so I didn't have to deal with restitution. Um, but when I was inside, there was a sister who was incarcerated for a, a financial crime and had the restitution payment of several million dollars. And then from there, when I got to um, Danbury into the federal prison, I had met Dr. Jamila T. Davis, who told me about the financial crimes. And then Ivy Wolfturk and Linda Tribby and all these other sisters that I were incarcerated with that had these 30, 12, $10 million restitution amounts that we knew they would never pay. But the issue, not only when they were released, while they were incarcerated, they had to pay restitution. So you already heard where, you know, um, you're making $9 a month, $4 a month, you know, um, and then you still have to pay restitution payments. A friend of mine who is presently incarcerated now, a guy, he just started working for commissary and he has a $2 million restitution, which by the way, he never received a dime. The judge even said that when he sentenced him as a part of a conspiracy and still gave him the $2 million restitution to pay. They have been taking $200 a month from him. So any money that comes into the prison, they take the money out and wow. ask for a restitution payment that is still accruing interest while they're in car. It is, I mean, it's fascinating. It's wild. It's um, wild. It is. And, and then it's like, where does the money go? There's no yeah. victim. In many of the cases, there's no victims. And so when there's no victims- That's a good question. Where, 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 does, where does the money go? I like that. That's trying to uncover. Oh, okay. All right. Paid, right? So um, a bunch I mean, of- I mean, I mean to laugh about it, but I don't know what else I can do. Laugh or I mean, cry. It, I mean, it's just crazy. No, it's true. It's true. So many of the sisters, Elise Roper, um, Dr. Davis, um, Sarita Stein, who received a pardon uh, and uh, remission for her restitution. When we were working on this, we found out I, that- I did not realize that a pardon doesn't always include remission. So you can get a pardon and still yeah. have to pay back $2 million, which is oh, okay. That's, Judith McGraw wow. was a prime example of that. I think her restitution was over $40 million and she received a pardon from the president, which released, I'm sorry, a clemency from the president, which released her from prison, but she had to go back and ask for another clemency for the remission because of the financial debt. Do, do, so, do, do you know what makes me so angry? I'm just at a digress for one minute. Like it's that we have these, the we have people that commit like uh, like horrible financial crimes against people and they're protected by like bankruptcy laws and how our systems work. And it's, it's it, they, they rob people's pensions and they can basically get away with this type of stuff for the most part. Um, my father calls it organized legal crime, but it's the, but then, you know, when someone is poor, or in prison, they find a way to, I mean, to hold $40 million is is just ridiculous. 
is a sister that has a $500 million restitution amount. $500 million. And did not it keeps you, it keeps you oppressed. It keeps you oppressed. That's what this yes. does. I mean, you know, so then again, and then it's 20 years post-conviction. So once you're out of prison, you paid it while you're in. When you're out, you have to pay it every month for 20 years. And then which time they also have the right, if they want, to start it over for another 20 years. So it, it really, really is. And so we started this campaign having had the opportunity uh, to do a panel. Um, the pardon attorney was there. The pardon attorney was like, wow, I think this is something that the president would get behind. We had a meeting with them. Um, and because again of the alignment of this is remission, so post conviction, the, the the much work that I've done with Erin, Jessica, um, just period. But then you know with reform and then focusing on supervision specifically, and then Candace, I'm sorry, Cassandra, who is who you know works with reform, speaks often just about her experience. It just was a natural synergy for us to partner and do this work again. So we were able to get 27 sisters. Uh, to submit their clemency applications to the Office of the Pardon Attorney and the President um, of the United States requesting for them to have uh, get their remission and their financial debts forgiven. And so um, all the applications have been accepted. Everyone has a case number. And now, you know, we're waiting, praying, looking to get meetings, you know, directly to the president so that we can have these conversations so they really understand that this is just another part of the system that no one talks about. What we what we were able to do working on this was to get the um, information updated on the U.S. Partner Attorney website, which was huge because they were able then to talk about the things that people need to do while they're looking for remission, which has not been done. Um, because people never put in remission applications because they don't even know it exists. Um, and so, you know, one of my best friends who's also an attorney, she just stated like, you know, she's just sad because so many times even fighting as a criminal defense attorney, she is focused on getting people out of prison or getting them the least yeah. time to serve in prison. She never even thought to think about the financial debt. And it's so much like, to take on. I mean, people can only do so much because they, it, as, as you know, as a criminal defense attorney, it's the system is under-resourced, so you're just trying to make sure that you can represent your clients is a challenge. Yeah, and she, did, but she didn't even think about it. She was like, yeah. "Why?" I mean, neither did I. This until you brought right. this up. So you're right. right. Law school, she said they don't teach it. Like they you don't. Know they, so they they're don't. putting together a CLE course. Um, so that we're really excited about that. That's awesome. To do, right to get get you know educate start to educate more attorneys on what this is. So while they're getting their clients, um, they understand what to look for. Um, but it's been it's been really powerful. We are really, really confident um, that these sisters are just the first group of many that right. will get the relief. And then hopefully that the president will be able to do something more across, you know, blanket as it relates to, um, you know, legislative things. And Erin can speak more to that. Right. Um, working on what type of provisions and different things that we need to put in bills so that people who have these financial convictions can, I mean, come on, even get off of probation and parole. Yeah. Yeah. You so, uh, yeah, I love to dive into that. And really talk about what we can do, right? Tell us what 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 you want to see done, and what can others listening to this podcast, what part can they play in, in, in really trying to 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 fight for justice in this area? 
Sure. So, um, you know, I think in terms of talking about solutions, there's so much that can be done as Dr. Topeka just laid out. It is so unimaginably broken um, that there are so many areas and avenues where little fixes can make a big difference um, for somebody's entire life. Um, so we're talking about, you know, when even as a public defender, right, I, I focused on people who didn't have money. And so for me, just as Topeka was laying out, I didn't really think very much about restitution. That was a battle for down the line. Like if we could avoid my client being in a cage, then that was the primary objective, right? right? Um, and I often thought of like white collar crime, just like you sort of talked about, Rob, is, with your dad, with their sort of legalized crime with people who, right, who are getting a lot of money. So so it never occurred to me until I started working with some of the women that Topeka introduced me to um, that that the majority of people who are are burdened by this, who are oppressed by this, who are really, you know, frankly, shackled by this are people who did not get money from their crimes. Right. These are sort of imaginary sums that the law essentially makes up. It's it's how much could have been taken essentially yeah. right how know. much could have been gained yeah so the people who are being forced to pay back 500 million dollars again even as a criminal defense attorney it was my inexperience and ignorance that i assumed well that must mean she got 500 million dollars i mean that's what i would have thought right and so <laughs> yeah. just give it back right like i think you know, <laughs> exactly. if, if you don't know very much about the issue and even if you know a lot about the criminal legal system in general if you don't know about this issue in particular it's very deceiving and the narratives around it are just as deceiving as when yes, we talk earlier are. about yeah, cops and monsters and all kinds of stuff. I mean, the politicization and, of this, I mean, it's just shortcuts and that's the challenging part. People can just yep. say they, they were convicted of a crime. They need to pay it back. And people, no more investigation, right? They don't right. Know, like, that's the problem. Right. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. Easy. Right? Yes. <laughs> and it, and so it sounds... Um, like healing in a way too, right? Like it's right. going back to the person who it was taken from. Yes. And of course, yeah. as Topeka explained, the vast majority of the time that isn't what's happening. And that's the reason why, not to interrupt you, when people have these these laws that they're passing and I, on the books and they're adding new type of things, I always look at it with a critical eye because I'm like, hmm, oh, we don't need any more like new <laughs> rules. Like we got we got enough rules on the books to, to solve all of our criminal issues. Like we don't need another law that does another thing that creates another complication. So <laughs> absolutely. And so there, there are things that you can do. Dr. Topeka Sam mentioned the remission now campaign, go to ladies of hope ministry. She can tell you more about what you can do, but go to the remission now campaign, join us, go to reform Alliance. We work with folks who are on community supervision, many of whom have large restitution payments that they're trying to make, but many of whom are just really struggling to deal with the insane number of conditions conditions that we put on people under supervision. There are a number of legislative proposals right now that would make huge differences in people's yeah. lives who are under community supervision and who have restitution payments. You know, please join the campaign. You can learn more about those solutions, make your voices heard, um, and let people know that this is not justice. Yep. Okay. Where can they learn about the, the, the campaign? Yeah, sure. So then go to our website, the Ladies of Hope Ministries, which is the T H E L O H M dot O R G. They can follow us on social media at T H E L O H M. Um, all social media platforms. Also, Reform Alliance has things on there as well. So at Reform, right? Um, yeah. On all social media uh, platforms as well. And yeah, 
reach out. And then we would definitely need every single hand if there are other opportunities for us to, you know, use our voice on platforms. Again, 27 women in the campaign. You don't have to hear from me. You can hear from any of them who are more than willing and want to share their experience. And all right, that's great. Dr. Japika K. Sam, Aaron Haney, thank you so much. Do not make yourselves a stranger. Don't make yourself strangers and go out there and keep disrupting. Pleasure having you.